the careless whispers are what get you in trouble. So I think that I've always tried to have a policy of honesty where just going, this is going to be awkward, but this is what I want to say to you. A lot of young producers, rather than earning their stripes, they want to do all the great stuff right from the outset. And that just doesn't happen. You know, you got to do the shit before you get the champagne. Those magical tones at the top belong to Shannon Davis, producer extraordinaire. These muggle tones belong to me, Basil Jared, average human. Today's episode is a corker. If you like your sport, if you like your footy, if you like your giggles, then there are plenty of those. For my foreign listeners, my apologies. We talk a lot about Australian rules football. Just hang in there. The lessons learned are universal. Shannon has been in the game a long time. She's got so much to offer. I am so surprised that I got her to do this. She hates talking about herself, but I'm super glad she did it. She's a legend. Listen to that. I sound a little loud. Jesus. Take it easy. That feels good for me. What about you? I love it. It's perfect. This is exactly what I want to be doing on a Tuesday, hearing myself. (laughs) I don't hear enough of my own voice. I don't think you do. I fucking do every day. I am white noise in my house, Baz, as my husband says to me, because I said, why do the kids listen to you and not me? And he goes, because you're white noise. Yes, you're living with boys and you're just white noise. (laughs) I'm keeping that in. This is in. We're already rolling. No. (laughs) So um, what role do you play at home then? At home, I'm definitely the motivator, the chief motivator, the agitator and principal annoyance for my three boys at home. I'm including my husband in that. I was going to say, I was like, I thought you had two kids. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any difference between your naughty boys and the shit talent that sometimes you have to deal with? Look, as a mum, very much get used to hearing your own voice and being able to motivate people to do things that they don't particularly want to do. And a lot of time I think the talent, you know, is way ambitious in what they think they're capable of than what they could actually deliver. So a lot of the time it's kind of, you know, quelling the expectation and realising their limitations and being able to deal with that. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So when you're at a cocktail party, because you're always at cocktail parties. Oh, God, I love a cocktail party. Every weekend. What do your friends think you do? Well, hilariously, most of my friends have no idea what I do. But I always hark back to my mum, who is, you know, my principal supporter and cheerleader and tells everybody that I run the Australian Open. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah, she does all of, I I think she does Rod Laver Arena. I don't think she does the other courts. So everything that happens on there that's not hitting tennis balls is her doing. And I'm like, I'm not quite sure how you got that. from you know because she's never actually asked me what I do but just always says oh you must have such late nights on those Australian open nights you know what time are you there from what time are you there till I think she thinks that I just sleep here the entire time and I don't connect with the outside world in that fortnight of tennis I mean it's not far off it's just (laughs) it's slightly different right well I'm I'm glad she thinks that you know the world couldn't function without me but I think it's well capable that things would just roll on as per usual you really think that? I do. Although, you know, I've, I, you get very invested in it, I must admit, that when you're doing it and you want to do a good job. And so a lot of the time, you know, from an event production's perspective, anything that's the most minute detail that's happening, whether it's behind the scenes or on court visible, no one in the stands is probably giving a rat's or knows what's going on, but you know how it's supposed to roll out. So when it doesn't roll out that way, you get kind of, a bit on edge because you're thinking I'd really like that to function the way it should and especially because there's so many people involved in the tapestry of production that when you know something's happening on court you'd like it to roll out the way it should. Do you ever get okay with things going tits up? I'm pretty sure that parenthood gives you a hand in being able to accept that things will go tits up at times because I mean, it's the nature of the beast. You've got a live audience, live performers, and particularly dealing with sports people who aren't, 
you know, a lot of the time they're not talent. They are just sports people. And yes, the ones at the very top are very used to having people pushing them around and telling them what to do and instructing them as to this is what. But really they're there to win a match, particularly when it comes to Grand Slams. And, you know, there's no bigger stage than, you know, the Rod Laver Arena, particularly in January. So they are anything that you're saying to them, which, you know, lends back to parenthood again. They don't hear a thing. They just are so focused on what's happening out the front. So it doesn't matter how many times you've said, yeah, you're right with this rapper or you're good with that, Roger. A lot of the time they're not listening. So they'll just walk straight out and do what they like. Wow. (laughs) So what is your title then? So my title's all-encompassing. It's event producer. Wow. Which, you know, I can say say that I do whatever I want to because it sort of encompasses everything. But I do generally get charged with what happens on Rod Laver Arena beyond the tennis matches of making sure that what rolls out on court is what we've planned. Right. Okay. Do you find yourself at times with such huge responsibility like that questioning why it's like midnight and you're, you know, like stuffing name badges into laminates or something like that? Well, it's the detail, Baz. It's the detail, you know. (laughs) Lanyards are super important on court and, you know, we've all been caught out without your security tag. Even some of the big name players, which God loves security, You'll see in the behind the scenes cameras that are, seem to be in every, you know, orifice and every corner of the stadium these days. They seem to capture poor players like your Rafa and your Roger and Serena just trying to get into the locker room and being stopped by an overzealous man in gold saying, sorry. You so it's just players only. You're like, no, I'm actually the greatest <laughs> women's player of all time. Um, no lanyard, no entry, Serena, sorry. It is great to see them pointing to themselves on the wall, the pictures that adorn the the title's kind of going, that guy's me. <laughs> he doesn't have a lanyard yeah. up there. <laughs> and, you know, and I know that they, you know, they get, by the same token, the security are under massive kind of, you know, pressure from, you know, the zealots above to kind of keep everyone in check and follow the rules regardless of who it is. But I think there's a couple of exceptions that maybe I wouldn't be standing and stopping Serena from getting into the locker room. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't take that risk. She'd you. She'd deck you. Those are those evil stares. I tell you what, she's oh frightening. Yeah, I wouldn't. Your role then, and you're a bit of a Malcolm in the middle between players' well-being, trying to keep them on the good side because you might be seeing them the whole tournament, and then you've also got the balance of people to answer to and and marks to hit. Like, what's What's that like? It is a bit of a balancing act. It's, it's quite, I mean, it's great because it, essentially it's about relationships and establishing something where they have some form of trust that you have an idea of what you're doing, even if sometimes that's more, you know, froth and bubble than, you know, actually knowing. But if you make them feel comfortable and that you know exactly what's going on and you're fairly forthright in your instruction, they'll soon you know, develop that relationship with you. And the same as the camera guys, you try and let everyone do their job to the best of their ability and then everyone feels happy about it. But at the same time, kind of, you know, playing that protective role of because the players are there to win matches, essentially. They don't care about the the media side of it, regardless of how much cash is being injected into it. And I think they are very generous with their time at some you know, various points during tournaments. But I think a lot of the time now this, you know, 24-7 news cycle and media cycle now thinks that everyone has the right to kind of, you know, be in the car with every player and be, you know, in the locker room with everyone. And at some point they've got to have some form of privacy to be able to get their thoughts together because it's like the same with anyone. When you're doing something that is, you know, your number one kind of priority in life, When you are put under the pressure and are made to feel as though, you know, that is being challenged by a lot of the time a stranger because they aren't familiar with everyone who's, you know, underneath the stadium because I think a lot of the time the, you know, the punters don't realise that there are so many people involved in the tournament and a lot of the time they're not all full-timers. There's so much casual army that comes in to make the AO come to fruition and a lot of the time they're not completely aware because they're not used to dealing with the, you know, the players and their needs and wants all the time. They may be traversing things that would the players would not normally see and the players are very aware of it. So they'll make you aware of it and kind of keep it all in check. 
and and I mean they know their own boundaries and you know what they're prepared to give and take and you know when they're in tournament mode it's very different to when they're kind of off court and I think a lot of the time people forget that and kind of go oh you know they're making a fortune we should be able to come up and see but you know I think there's that real respect that we owe you know the playing fraternity because without them there's no (laughs) there is no tournament so I think a lot of the time it's a a mutual kind of give and take of that media juggernaut that is you either accept that that you're not always going to get exactly what you had planned to get from you know every interview every you know court side you're not going to get that access that you thought you would but by the same time I think people try and facilitate that they know that you're doing a job and you've got a you know you've got marks to hit from editors and you know news directors and all the various types because there's so much coverage these days it's just very hard to hide so you're respecting the players and you know we're talking about tennis here but I think that it just goes across the board it's not a normal thing for most people to you know have a couple of cameras pointed at them some lights and stuff how do you help out the untalented talent a lot of the time I think it's just making them feel relaxed and as soon as you kind of you know, people, of course, as soon as they're put on camera, which is why most people, as soon as a microphone is in their face, they're, it's it's an unnatural kind of thing, even for people who do it all the time. So to get them into a space where they're sort of forgetting the fact that they're, you know, sharing stuff that you'd like to hear from them, I think you've got to kind of disarm them by making them feel incredibly relaxed and also, you know, first up you're not going to hit them with something that might be you know explosive or you've got to make them feel very comfortable about that space and then you know it's the way you word things a lot of the time you'll get so much more out of them if it's you know done from the perspective of rather than trying to be sensational you're more trying to be you know give them an opportunity to tell their story rather than you projecting what you'd like them to say and then you know projecting back you'll always get so much more if you open the space for them to be able to communicate what they'd like to communicate first and then, you know, work your way around and massage them to a space that you'd like them to Love be Love them in. into a false sense of security, <laughs> like I am right and now. And then pounce. And then boom, juicy question. <laughs> when did it all change then? I've only known you in, in a tennis sphere. How long have you been at tennis and, and was there a change of gears into tennis or? Well, it all kind of started that first and foremost, I started off as a newspaper journalist, to, yeah. you know, budding cadet in the, in the ranks and then came through newspapers and finished at the um, Herald Sun and then had, you know, ambitions to be on camera as a lot of journos do, particularly now in this multimedia space. And so I took off to win television, regional TV and uh, was posted up at Ballarat for 18 months and worked on my craft there in front of camera, which I realised was non-existent very quickly. (laughs) Um, I battled. Possibly my favourite moment was a live camera report from up in the Wimmera where there'd been massive drought conditions. Uh, fell down a dam as I was doing a live piece to camera and rolled down the hill kind of cowboys and Indian style as though I was, you know, in the middle of the Arizona desert. Cameraman was hysterical. Sandy was hysterical. It made the news every night that week in some way, shape or form up there. Dennis Walter was our, our news anchor at the time and he found some way to wangle it in every night for that week. So I became a bit of a star but not for my talent. You were the original meme. For my lack of talent. Your yeah. kids would love that. It was outstanding. <laughs> it was my proudest moment in front of camera. And then beyond that, I then came back to Melbourne and was working at seven on camera for a while. And then as with uh, all women and uh, possibly men, but no men that I knew at that time, women in television, my news director came up to me and said that I swiftly had to lose 10 kilos or lose my on-camera role. I took the latter. (laughs) I mean, I love my food, but, you know, it's hard to say no. So uh, it was, yeah, it was quite a confronting kind of moment, but I'm able to laugh about it now. But at the time I was, you know, I mean, I, I didn't go into non-food mode. I think it was a, the comfort of food that got me through that. Yeah. So. But you're, I mean, for, for all the giggles, you're not a pushover. No. And I don't imagine you would have been. 
No. Exactly. So I'm, I must admit that I started to see the limitations of my abilities on camera only by viewing myself, you know, hundreds of thousands of times going, God, I just don't seem to be getting better at this. <laughs> but um, you can only fool them for so long. So then I, I uh, at that stage, I'd been working, I knew quite a lot about it sport from a young age because I've always been involved with it and my dad played AFL footy and my brother so I had a a real kind of love for that game and we had some friends in AFL football one of them was at seven with me Tim Watson who he sort of said to me you know forget all this and you know producing's a go you know you can look whatever you however you want and I was like oh that's for me and he was like uh, let, I'm writing something at the moment with this an upcoming upstart Craig Hutchison that you would be great I want you to produce it it'd be awesome anyway we we were the first of the reality genre when seven launched the club which was an insider's kind of look at a local football club, which was in the Western District Football League at the time. And it was, a, you know, a created team for television called the Hammerheads that took on the rest of the Western District Footy League. And it was a reality-styled show. And at that time on TV, Pop Stars was massive. And, you know, it was the first of that, the first generation of the reality genre. And the club, you know, fit that nicely with Melbourne's obsession with sport. And we rated really well for, you know, the first couple of weeks. And, you know, we were flying. And then all of a sudden, like our team, the Hammerheads, you know, the, the breaks went on as, you know, our EPs and the, you know, people in positions of authority started trying to manipulate, you know, just put a little bit more of a a heavy touch on the way that the club should run rather than watching a football club and being fly on the wall. We started doing a few circus tricks and, you know, people see through that. But, I mean, it was great to be a part of. It was fantastic. It was fun. It was, you know, Hutchie's first venture into hosting on camera. I'll never forget the day that he went and sort of, you know, said to Tim that he'd love to host the program. Did he see him as, you know, was there a possibility? And Tim said, just as I'd heard a couple of years before, if you drop drop 20 kilos, maybe. But Hutchie set about losing that weight. Right. And he did a great job, massive weight drop. And so, yes, he hosted the program from go to woe. So we got 12 months out of it. And to this day, I think in Melbourne, we were doing 370,000 viewers. What the footy show would have given for that at the end of their tenure. Wow. I imagine with your journo background, it's something that I find tricky too. Do you have a line with the circus tricks? I think it's really hard when a lot of people who are maybe beyond the you know, coming from a Sydney background and stuff and don't have that understanding of the way an AFL football club works and they're just looking at it from the outside going, ah, we need to get another coach in there or, but that's not the way it would normally happen or, you know, this is, we need to just be viewing it from that point of view. So I think that a lot of the time, you know, whether it's trying to uh, make something like another genre that has worked really well, and thinking that we'll just, you know, tinker it up and make it, I, I, I does not sit well with me at all. Gotcha. It's like if you're watching a program and you're thinking that you're seeing it inherently and then there's all this, you know, manipulation to make things happen, don't like it. Yeah, gotcha. Those conversations, are they were they taking the form of calls or emails? And, and I'm guessing if you're producing, are you taking the brunt of that? Steve Perkin, who was used to be the... Uh, EP of the footy show and we sort of poached him to do it and Steve Dundon was were also on the program with myself and we were taking calls from Sydney Daily because that was where sort of the base for the network was and they had signed off on the show and given us the the green light to make this program and given us a brief as to how it was you know it was to roll out and then as the weeks rolled on and the program started doing all right they then started to want to have more involvement in how it would run and I think that you know by the end of it you can only keep trying to craft so many things without it looking unauthentic which was exactly what I know that Tim and Craig didn't want it to be and I mean especially those two guys now with their profile in the in the sport At the start, it was such a fantastic idea and they were, you know, the plaudits were coming for them because they were the first in that space. And uh, 
and now I think that they're really disappointed that they had they allowed you know the powers that be kind of lean on us to change what had started out as something that was much more pure than what it ended up being Mm. we've chatted about some awesome things that you have done I want to get into some of your favorite things that you've worked on so after I finished working you know for seven for you know quite a few years I then uh, took up a role at roving enterprises which um, you know used to produce rove live and now they have the project but uh, at that time Pete Hellier was a and is a massive AFL footy fan. And Pete was Rove's sidekick on his nightly show and doing great. And so Craig Campbell, who was the EP at um, Roving Enterprises, he wanted to keep Pete happy. Pete had shown an interest in getting up some sort of AFL show. And Craig said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get something up, we'll get something up. Anyway, Pete, uh, that was the gestations of the show that initially was known as After the Game. And so we sort of started off Broadway at 10.30 at night. And I think Craig always liked to do things a bit different. And rather than just bringing in the, you know, the same old footy crowd, he said, yeah, rather than having guys at the helm of something that was generally a very male-dominated space, he got Michelle Wyatt and myself to produce it and so we did that for 10 years and it was so much fun we had an absolute ball Pete was you know fantastic in his support for it and what we started off as which was you know 10 30 after the game and you know sort of hiding us before sports tonight which was you know the go-to show of that time to get your sporting news And then we started gaining a little bit of momentum. And I can remember at the start when I was sort of trying to talent produce for that, trying to get players to come on our program, which was live, you know, in studio at 10, at 10.30 on a Saturday night after games was, (laughs) it was was a tall order. A lot of favours called in for those first 12 months. But I think the players saw that it was a really different area for them to be able to show a lot more of their personality and, you know, have some fun in what had been a very, um, you know, the footy show, which had been so fantastic for, you know, showing another side to the players. This was that kind of next level of being able to have a bit of fun. But rather than being a show that was panelled by ex-players and guys who knew so much about the game, our program was very much about punters who absolutely were obsessed with it and fans and our our kind of core was comedic based and we had what we considered the country's best comedians were on our panel and also you had to have a love of the game that was our our number one criteria for being on the show and Pete is such a Collingwood tragic that he was perfect and then in our first incarnation we had Damien Callanan was on our panel who was also fantastic he was a Bombers supporter we had um, now was Husey in the first incarnation? I think he was. We all know what a mad wow. Carlton man he is. Yeah. And initially, we had Eloise Southby was in the was um, on the panel, and she's got connections with her dad Jeff at Carlton, and she's also an Australian netballer or was an Aussie netballer. Loves her footy, and Eloise made the fatal mistake of being in the Australian team and heading off on a tour overseas. So we brought our young reporter Sam Lane in on the panel. Watch out, daughter of Tim, and Where Sam did she was. Go? <laughs> Sam was fantastic. So poor Eloise, handballed yeah. out. Don't ever take a holiday in, you know, football. Holy shit! Yeah. yeah so Ain't... she was on the outer, and all of a sudden we had this little show that could. Yeah. And then we um, took the next step and went to. Prime time on a Saturday night when 10 got the football rights. That's madness. It was fantastic. So we had 10 years of having fun, just poking fun at footy. I had this down to ask later, but I feel like you're very, very young at heart. (laughs) And do you think that is personality? Is that part of the TV game? And with the show that you worked on for for 10 years there, is like how big a part of fun was that? Uh, the best part of making a show like that where essentially we would be, you know, putting together the production of the show, which would be either a half hour or a full hour, depending on the games and where we were positioned in the day. And a lot of the time the boys would come in, our, our comedic boys, Sammy would be out working at one of the games in Melbourne that we would have requested for her to do a, a local game. And our comedic um, 
punter boys would be come in and watch the game all together. They had the it was their best time. They all looked forward to it on a Saturday, which was fantastic because they were all working in radio and other television programs. But they always looked forward to a Saturday. We never had a sickie. Yeah. Like how kind of everyone loved it being in there and having a laugh with their mates. And we'd just pick out the funny things that grabbed us during the game. I don't think we ever ran a highlights package as such. It was always just something that interested us or a talking point or, and always tried to inject a bit of humour into what, you know, in, at that time a lot of people were doing the, you know, that real analysis of the game, whereas we had a bunch of boobs on our panel who just wanted to have a laugh and show us ridiculous things that most people down the pub would have a laugh at. Yeah. So it was a really fun time and, you know, we made some great friendships during that time and the boys, I think most of them are still working in that space at the moment yeah. or, or trying to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Husey always maintains that if he had in the afterlife, he'd love to come back as a wag. And he used to always talk about being Chris Judd's squeeze. <laughs> he, he said that red dress would have looked fabulous. Oh, him. yeah. There you go. <laughs> he's a frustrated wag. He says yeah, that himself. That's Oh, man, Husey. Oh, he's doing that. I feel like everyone's doing all right. <laughs> hey, they're all doing all right. Yeah. I think Leaves took a battering recently when, you know, he was trying to hold back the hands of time with the new and invigorated footy show. They tried to reinvigorate like a, a footy panel show, right, that was beloved for however many years. 25 years, the footy show. And then was it always was it always too much of a tough ask? I mean, the footy show broke ground phenomenally when it, you know, first started out and Eddie was at the helm initially and was the, you know, number one instigator and he had Sam as his right-hand man with him on the panel who an ex-footballer who was always very outspoken and controversial. And so one of Sam's great attractions was that he didn't give a rat's what anyone thought. So I, it was, you know, a great starting point and they used to, a lot of the time it gave the players a chance to, you know, speak out in a panel kind of setting that, that you would never normally hear. It would always be much more formal prior to that. And I think the footy show was kind of a reinvention of Wide World of Sport, which was a massive kind of program in the... 60s and 70s for um, Channel 7 and so Nine reinvented it and it was groundbreaking at the time because they didn't have the rights to the football and couldn't ever show football on their program but they managed to have a massive you know football audience and had a following that was cult-like for 25 years but you know there's only so long that you can keep doing the same thing and I think a lot of the time they they didn't pay respect to the audience in terms of they thought that um, a lot of what they used to do at sportsmen's nights and still do to, you know, this day, which was kind of, you know, poke fun at women, minorities, all the usual kind of uh, no-go zones, that they, even though the rest of the world was changing, they didn't seem to want to change with it. And so they were like, we've always done it this way and, you know, didn't want to realise that, there's a very astute kind of viewing audience now who can be incredibly selective with what they watch because there's such a wide variety available to them. And so people started turning off because they were just sick of the same old, same old and they tried to keep pushing the same thing. And I think that in the end, you know, they did sort of reinvent themselves towards the end for their last sort of 12 months or so, but I think it was too late. Mm. Too little, too late. Gotcha. I guess I, I look at that and I see, yes, you can have the recipe, but sometimes there's like a secret sauce. That's in everything, isn't it? There's yeah. so It doesn't matter where it's on the sporting field or, you know, in front of a camera or something that seems like it should work so easily and feel so right. Sometimes it just does not go right. And whether it's kind of chemistry or you know, a blend of all these things. I think that, you know, team chemistry, on-air chemistry, that kind of thing, you can't place enough value on it because that seems to be the thing that you, you can't fake friendship. You can't – and that kind of manufactured, you know, kinship that a lot of programs, particularly panel programs, try to do, it just doesn't seem to work. There needs to be a definite connection between – the people and a, a passion for what they're actually presenting that seems to be the great appeal 
to the broader public. People can see through a phony. So they, when you're sitting at home and you're watching something and go, they're not really mates. You know, everyone's like, oh, no, she hates him. That's, <laughs> And I think a lot of the time you can't then try and reintroduce something that you think, oh, you know, now we've got to put a woman on the panel because that's the way it's got to be. It's got to have, she's got to have a real purpose and a function and, you know, be there for her merit, not just the fact that, you know, now she's, I think a lot of the time now football has, you know, with women and the AFLW coming into uh, vogue now, I think girls have been playing footy forever, but all of a sudden now that they're, you know, we're getting a bit more of seeing it on a day-to-day basis with uh, the AFLW and their ambitions for the game going into the future. But I think particularly from a broadcast perspective, there's a lot of girls that are now, you know, getting their chance with the mic in hand and realising that they've got something to contribute. Because I think for a long time, guys have always thought, particularly players, you don't know anything about the game because you've never played. Well, there's plenty of guys in that same bracket who have made a fantastic career out of broadcasting. For one, Bruce McAvaney, who's one of the doyens of the game. He's never played football at the highest level, but he's fabulous because he captures those moments and can, you know, you know, respect what these guys are achieving on and off field. And I think it's that kind of stuff that people can see on camera, which is why I think a lot of girls, particularly a Daisy Pierce, she has a real appeal because she has an understanding of the game and she also she appeals more broadly because she's embracing and she's inquisitive and curious and all the things that we are when we're watching and wanting to learn something. Just to backtrack a little bit, the faking of the friendship, it just immediately reminded me of Royne HG. This is making more and more sense to me why you're so funny. You've been around some of the biggest names and clearly like held your own with them. Tell me about Royne HG in the Olympics and oh, all that. that was very intimidating, Bad. Yeah, a friend of mine, Leslie Tapsell, who is an absolute genius producer. She's done quite a few Olympic Games now. I don't even want to hazard to guess how many. Has been the head of the broadcast for that. She was heading up the Sochi coverage, the Winter Olympic one, and had an idea from my background in comedy and sports that I might have an interest in putting bringing together some kind of program that for the winter olympics that we would be able to have a laugh in and there's no better men than roy and hg and when she initially mentioned those names i was like not gonna happen because they'd sort of been in hiatus for a while and i know that john doyle's very hard to lure to do anything let alone something like that but i don't know whether they you know showered him in cash but whatever happened was fabulous because they agreed to it and we all know from their previous Olympic experiences when they bought the dream to Tally how, you know, the response from everyone, that's something that, you know, to this day is a legend in television yeah. of how great that, that um, I think it was the 2000 Sydney Games yeah. where it was launched and so many great laughs, particularly with the gymnastics that's often yeah. seen as a minnow sport. <laughs> but, boy, they brought some joy to it. I don't think we'll ever forget about it, Sav. <laughs> Leslie had set up a meeting for John Gregg, who is HG. His name's Greg Pickover, for those that don't know. When Ooh, watch out, it's that scoop. John Gregg and myself kind of met, and here's two absolute legends of comedy and sport and two brilliant men. I managed to get my foot in the door with John because my husband's an architect and he is a big architectural fan, so we kind of talk about architecture for a while. Normally I would be nodding off when my husband talks of these things, but I had to go home and get a few crash courses in some things that John had just done an architectural show on one of the pay TV networks. So it was a great kind of in for me. And Greg is just so embracing and such a great guy. So he was, you know, all in right from the start. And he was like, yeah, what are you going to bring to it? He was a big fan of before the game. So we uh, started working on a couple of ideas. And before we knew it, the Russian Revolution was in kind of full production mode. So we had a, a nightly kind of program that we would do from our chalet at the 10 studio right here in Melbourne, the rough and wintry days. So even though the rest of the world thought we were freezing it out in Sochi, we were actually on the um, sixth level at uh, really? South Yarra here. Watch out. Dirty secrets. So we created this kind of 
uh, wintry, snowy chalet and had a whole bunch of fun making fun of Russia and Russian food, which, you know, is such a delicacy and who wouldn't want to wrap their lips around stale bread? Wow. But I think we had real fun and working with, you know, two legends like that, I learned so much more from them than they could ever have learned from me. But yeah. I was able to prod them with a few things that I thought they might think was fun and we had a really great time for the, you know, fortnight that yeah. the Olympics was on. It was a great experience. What did you learn? What, what, are, what are you learning? Well, I think a lot of the time it's that particularly when you've got a comedy duo like those two, they had such a connection and are two very different people off camera. And John was very much an introvert that, you know, when he was in his Roy Slaven character, he was just, you know, larger than life and, you know, turned the camera on and he was, you know, switched on and fabulous. But off camera, he was hugely, hugely introverted and, you know, was a, a very much an intellect and very thoughtful in his, you know, development of, you know, a joke from it had to have a very, a very real narrative or he wasn't interested. So, which was very different to what I'd come from because, you know, we were always kind of hit and miss, you know, find it and have a swat at it in before the game and have a giggle. And if it, you know, went in a pile of flames. But I think that with all great comedians, like with... Roy and HG and, you know, the boys on before the game who I think you've got to be prepared to fail and that's the thing. Sometimes comedy is that very fine line of, you know, being really funny or it not quite coming off and being a bit awkward and it's being able to walk that precipice of kind of going, yes, I am prepared to, you know, fluff up here because a lot of the time a lot of the comedy that, I kind of, you know, work with is um, a bit more layered than, you know, just your conventional joke thrown out there to kind of do, particularly with Roy and HG. It doesn't look like it, but the way it's put together is a bit like a jigsaw to get to where they're wanting to head with their, you know, where the joke is going to end up. It's not exactly where it starts, but they were so giving to each other in playing the straight man and, you know, batting away other things because they knew that the end result was going to be a great laugh and it didn't matter whether who was executing that final kind of laugh at the end. They knew that they'd both come together for this, you know, crescendo and it sounds bizarre to be talking about comedy like that but no. that is, yeah. you know, great comedy is when, you know, one person is willing to set the other up and give them, you know, the the kudos and I think that when you really trust someone which those two have had a relationship over so many years and I think they're the only ones it's like a marriage that they truly trust on camera to be able to pull something off and if one of them's on board with the gag and the other one's not I think that it's that trust that gets it over the line to be able to even attempt it and I mean that's that makes for great tv when someone doesn't know where the other one's going and I think a lot of good comedy on telly particularly with before the game which we did for a long time the boys would never give away their their jokes to each other prior to going to air so even though we would rehearse the show they would never ever rehearse their jokes they would just do throwaway lines which were sometimes funnier than what they ended up coming up with when we were live to air but uh, they would always save their stuff so that they'd get a good reaction from each other. And if it made them laugh on the panel, then they would assume that it would be making people laugh at home. So I think that's the the recipe for for good comedy is that kind of, you know, willingness to stuff it up. Yeah. And it not be funny. Great comedians are really good at covering after something's gone, you know, belly up. Yeah. And sometimes you can have your funniest moments of something that's failed that then, you know, they'll they'll dig their way out of that yeah. a corner that you kind of go, that was brilliant because I thought you had nowhere to go there. <laughs> I thought you were dead in the water. But, um, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Amazing. So what do you see young producers doing wrong then? And I have to think that part of the longevity in any career is reputation, right? Yeah, I think that... A lot of young producers, I, I mean, they seem to be able, they seem to turn their hand to so many things. And I think a lot of the time the, the shooter, producer, director, you know, people that can do it all, it's phenomenal how they come out with such a skill set now. Whereas in, you know, when I was coming through, it was very much, you know, 
a single kind of purpose role. Mm. Now it seems like they've got such a diverse skill set when they come through. But I think a lot of the time, a lot of young producers make the mistake of rather than earning their stripes, they want to do all the great stuff right from the outset. Mm. And that just doesn't happen. And you've got Mm. to gain people's trust in what you know you got to do the shit before you get the champagne yeah. is kind of an old saying you know the, and a lot of the time you know these guys that you know have come through school and stuff and they come out the other end and think oh you know I'm, I've done this at school and I've I've shot a documentary and it was an award winner and it was a this and a that and you know you I mean that's fine but you're you're only as good as your last kind of program and particularly in an industry like that we're working in is that the changing face of it all the time is that you laugh and kind of think oh people that you may have dissed years ago yeah. are now your boss yeah <laughs> because it is a small industry particularly in Australia you know, you'll hear a name and kind of go, oh, that guy, I remember that guy. Yeah. And kind of so p- treating people disrespectfully or, you know, not doing the job and thinking, yeah, I'll just, you know, rock up and do what I want. Yeah. And, you know, I've done this and I've done that. I think that a lot of them have the attitude of um, entitlement where, yeah. you know, in I feel like now I'm 105 and my kids are always picking me up when they're like, in your day, mum, did you have cars when you were born? Oh, wow. That kind of stuff. But uh, in that day, I mean, you just did whatever was asked of you and you never kind of questioned it. Yeah. And now I think there's a lot more kind of questioning by which, you know, can be good and bad because a lot of great collaboration is what creates great programming. But I think a lot of the time they don't want to do the hard stuff first. Mm. I think a good producer a lot of the time is good good with relationships and good at being able to get people to feel that they can trust you enough to to get on board and do even though we're selling a message or a particular what we're trying to do, they want to be able to do it not only because they're bringing their own, you know, high standards to it, because I, I don't think I've ever worked with anybody that kind of goes, oh, I'll just dial it in and see how it goes. And, you know, everyone is, that I've dealt with, particularly over a prolonged period of time, has been really conscientious in there. And it sounds weird when you're talking about comedy and jokes to be conscientious, but it takes so much craft. And I think a lot of people think that I know that over the years when – the programming that I've worked on, people just think it's off the cuff that, you know, a gag that happens when people see something and go, oh, I might, but they don't realise it's been carefully crafted through writing and editing and to be funny. And I think that's when you put too much pressure on, you know, the end result, It sometimes it, it does need to be organic, but sometimes, you know, realising that there's a lot of layers that go into making a funny program. I think all people who work in TV, particularly comedy programming, would say the same thing, that it it's not just a throwaway joke. Because my husband used to often say to me, I God knows why you go into work so early. It's like a half an hour show and it's live. What do you do for the rest of the time here? And I'm like, yeah, I, it appears live, but it, it, we're actually working on what the content of it is. It doesn't just happen that all of a sudden Hughes is hysterical. That, you know, a lot of work goes into finding the moments that create that kind of on-air chemistry and allows that comedy to take place. The greatest armoury of a producer is being able to engage with the talent and making sure that they are happy to exchange that kind of ideas with you. And, I mean, as it comes down to anything in any business, it's respect. And if they respect you, they'll generally, you know, get on board. And even though you might be younger and less you know, have less experience sometimes if they see that, you know, you you know what you're doing. Confidence. You've got to breathe that confidence, Baz. What do you think about burning bridges? You're, you're super honest and just even before we started, you said, I'd say that I'd say that to his face. So where does where do you sit in the oh. scorching people and Baz, I love I love um honesty but I do I do try I try and take pride in the fact that there's no one that I would have worked with previously I mean I'm sure there's plenty that go eh bitch but I think that I I wouldn't say anything to you that I wouldn't have said to them yeah 
So, you know, like it doesn't matter who you're dealing with. I think honesty is the key. And if you, particularly in an industry like ours and when you're dealing with a number of personalities and a lot of them are big personalities, of them hearing you've said something about them to someone else rather than saying it directly to them, you know, like the careless whispers are what get you in trouble. So I think that I've always tried to have a policy of honesty where just going, this is going to be awkward, Mm. but this is what I want to say to you and try and be as honest as I can. And then I'd prefer to have an exchange straight up. Yeah. And I mean, a a lot of people hate confrontation, Yeah. but I would much prefer the confrontation than kind of going behind someone's back and then hearing it down the track. Yeah. If it's the best football player and he's a dickhead, you're probably going to have to have him on your show or you're going to, come across him again how do you how do you is that when you're having those conversations i mean universally i think most people would acknowledge jason ackermanis is a dickhead right he was is also particularly from the era of when we were doing the show is one of the greatest footballers that was playing in his generation and was part of that three-peat brisbane team yeah and i it's universally known that most of his teammates think he's an absolute goose, but I think they would also say that they highly respect him from a footballing point of view. He's a really sweet guy, and but he has, you know, this personality that he just doesn't seem to have a filter and also doesn't seem to have any self-recognition or self-awareness of when he's putting someone offside or else he just busts right through and doesn't care, which is probably part of his freestyling ability to be one of the best in the game. But he was a difficult character to deal with. And I can remember when I was heavily pregnant with my son and Acker was a guest on the show. When he first arrived, I was sitting in this, which sounds ridiculous now, I was sitting in this armchair in studio kind of, you know, off my feet because they were swelling out of control and I was like in my last trimester of pregnancy and I'm sitting down and Acker had sort of just arrived on set and when when he came, we had a live studio audience, about 100 people in the audience who were sort of, you know, around me watching all the guys on the panel and Acker came in and sat down. He'd come from a match at the MCG that day so he was kind of a late arrival, sat down and was just like, oh, my God, could you look any fatter in that chair? <laughs> Squeeze me. (laughs) Yeah. So he was one of those guys that used to kind of polarise and, I mean, I was somewhat humiliated but then it was nice to see that the boys stepped in and kind of suitably humiliated Acker in my – and I can remember coming off after that and kind of seeing him in the green room and having a bit of a kind of – we had a back and forth and he was trying to disarm it with being, you know, I was, you know, it was funny and, you know, it was nothing intended. But I was super annoyed and I think it was the fact that I felt every bit as what he was accusing me of, that yeah. I didn't like someone pointing it out to me. And to this, I mean, to this day, Acker and I have done quite a few things since then and we've always kind of laughed about it. But I think that if you don't call people out, at the time of something, you can't then sit on it and down the track kind of go, yeah. Bring it up, yeah. I used to have a similar kind of love-hate relationship with Mick Malloy, who, you know, is an absolute legend of the comedy game, fantastic addition to before the game, and now on front bar he's absolutely flying, taking it to the next level. Yeah. But um, he was always a difficult character to deal with because he'd been in the industry for such a long time. Yeah, he's like a legend of the game. But also there's four other people as part of your on-air team and when you're not, you know, respecting them as you should be with, you know, being punctual and, you know, all those things of expectation. And at that time as the producer, I was charged with kind of pulling him into line and, you know, sometimes it was really difficult to do that. But I think to this day Mick would kind of say that, you know, I, I never kind of backed down from you know, calling him out on his bad behaviour. Yeah. And he's made a career out of doing it. So who's the fool? Me! uh, Despite. (laughs) But isn't it crazy that that some people can still make it despite that, despite flaws, you know? The thing is he's got... He's got that real common man kind of touch that people really identify with and love, which... And, you know, he's an absolute diehard of the game, which is, 
you know, awesome. And I think that, you know, a lot of that success too is one of the guys who I worked on in before the game who is now producing Front Bar, A.D. Brown, who was, you know, is just a phenomenal kind of observer and being able to harness that kind of talent. Mm. A.D. was always really good at, you know, being able to get everyone on board and, you know, involved and... yeah. Um, he has done a fantastic job with bringing the front bar because I think a lot of the time most people kind of slap Mick on the back and go, haven't you done an amazing job? When a lot of the time I think they forget what's, you know... Propping it all up. Yeah. Yeah. I I can see how frustrating that would be. It's just like getting all the pats and stuff and it's just like if you knew what it took to get this person here on time or you know in the right state of mind you know give them all the homework that they should have done themselves yeah yeah i i I, i'm picking up what you're putting down there i want to know about good and bad days and how you do you know deal with them or how you've learned to deal with them what does a good day look like for you now and does that change with kids particularly on before the game, when I used to do that, my kids were young at that stage. Doing it for 10 years, they grew up and I was kind of on on that program. And initially, I always laugh at this time of Maddie Lloyd, who was, you know, one of the greats of the game. And Lloydie used to come on the show quite a bit and do some work for us. He was the great number 18, my boys and Mad Bombers supporters. But of course, they knew number 18 as, you know, um, Michael Hurley. So I was like saying to them, you know, trying to school them in the fine art of AFL brilliance and yep. I kind of said that number is nothing without, an, you know, M. Lloyd on it. And so my little five-year-old was in the green room when we had a couple of Bombers players on and Lloydie was on and Jet was in there with his little number 18 jumper on, you know, emblazoned for Michael Hurley, poor unbeknownst to Lloydie. And I'm like thinking, oh, Lloydie, I'm so pumped that you're here and... You know, Jet was so wrapped, he's worn his jumper in for you to sign. And then as Lloyd, he's taking out the Sharpie and getting ready to write on his number. Jet's like, I I don't want you to write on my jumper. That's for Michael Hurley. And I was like, (laughs) so, you know, like kids just are, they are heading to this day, Jet, who Lloyd, coaches his mate's footy team now at school and um, he laughs and kind of said, Mum, I cannot believe that I did that to Matthew Lloyd. He's such a legend. How did Lloyd take it? Uh, He just laughed and was just like, oh, God, they forget you in a heartbeat, don't they? He's like, (laughs) he was a very good sport. I love that. But, um, (laughs) yeah, I think having – every day's a bad day when you've got young children. Well, you know, you're kind of like, you know, putting out spot fires and playing troubleshooter the entire time. So – the roles kind of blur of, you know, now when I kind of come to work, it's quite relaxing to kind of gotcha. get here and not actually have someone back chat you when you ask them to do something. So I think that a, a good day is when you feel like you've made something that particularly when you, you know, making some video content and stuff for Tennis Australia and doing uh putting together a piece on at the moment we're doing some labor cup stuff which is the you know roger federer backed rod laver tribute tournament that has grown legs in the last couple of years totally and the the newest edition is going to be in switzerland in september watch out and we've been making some content for that and we've got some brilliant young editors slash producers in there doing some good work and when i come in and kind of you know you've said oh is it, do you reckon we might be able to pull something together for this and you come in you know two hours later they've slabbed up something that you know rivals something that 20 years ago you would have crafted forever when you used to have to tape and splice everything from yeah like, yeah and now you know like I feel like such an old dog and I laugh when all the you know, all the young producers and editors and stuff always ask me whether Rod Laver was a good player because I would have been around then. Yeah. And, you know, did I ever see Margaret Court play? <laughs> and I was like, how dare you? I look old, but 
Yeah. I'm young at heart. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you joke about um, the young kids and pushing all the magic buttons and stuff, and it's very different to how it was. But at the the end of the day, like, it's still the same, right? It's telling stories, and people love stories. People love, you know, feeling like they're seeing something that you haven't seen before or you're hearing something that you haven't. And I think particularly in the tennis world, like some of the things that for a long time now tennis has been on the wane from a – participation perspective probably TA would hate me saying that but I think they you know once upon a time country towns across you know Australia were full of tennis courts and people hitting balls which was why we had such phenomenal talent in that golden era of the game and now uh, it, it after you know a long time in the wilderness all of a sudden we've got this number one women's player in the world very recently yeah who, you know, plays a style of game that's very similar to that kind of golden era with all the shots of, you know, a lovely slice. And the slice, yeah. Yeah, the slice is back, it's which back, everyone baby. thought was dead. Um, I think it's, you know, reinvigorated, you know, everyone in, in here because, you know, you, feel, you want to feel like you're working on something that people are, you know, interested in. And I think that there's some great stories in the game and, you know, we're in an, an era of phenomenal brilliance from a point of view of those at the top. I think there's an argument of who's the greatest of all time and I think there's a three-pronged attack in the men's game of you know, Roger, Raffer and Novak. And in the women's game, Serena's still belting along, you know, trying to get that elusive 24th title. Yeah. And here we've got little Ashley Barty kind of, you know, chiming in for a grand slam while Serena's still chipping away trying to win that 24th. You know, they get to Wimbledon and Serena with her disarming charm, dismissing Ash by calling her a sweet little thing. Ugh. And, you know, she's just got that uber competitive instinct of constantly trying to keep people in their place. And rather than giving her the kind of... The props. Oh, of, mm. you're world number one. It's a phenomenal effort. And I think super uber popular in the locker yeah. room. Oh, yeah. I think that now that people are kind of like um, going, oh, I don't know, from an Australian tennis perspective, hoping that people jump on board while, you know, Ash is inking up fresh wins every week yeah. and saying, you know, bad boy status is not going to cut it anymore on the tennis court. Yeah. Let's let's actually win and not totally. It's, rather than flapping at the gums, let's win some matches. Yeah, and then you can arc up. Let the boys You've got to get talking. the scores on the yeah. board first. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I want to ask you about unfair advantage. Do you think you have an unfair advantage, and and what do you think that is? Mm, I think that a lot of the time, because my background was journalistic based initially that I feel like, you know, it's definitely an advantage for me. I have a confidence in linguistics and stuff before I even get to, you know, having to put something down on a, in an edit. I feel like I can confidently tell a good story before I see a picture. Coming from a newspaper background, telling the story without pictures was always hard. And so having to do that when you're cutting your teeth on journalism and then realising, oh, my God, you can actually tell the story with pictures as you start getting into the television kind of sphere. It's just, you know, a picture tells a thousand words, the old adage goes, and it's so true that, you know, as soon as you start looking at pictures and it just, for me, it sort of all fell into place and I feel like that that's my kind of unfair advantage of coming from that newspaper background where you used to just try and tell a story with words and now having the pictures to back everything up just feels so much more natural and mm. easy. You've said you prefer the the mushroom room where the editors are and sometimes the madness is going to the very like sterile office environment that you, you know you have a table on if you want does that come from somewhere is that just well i think like it's madness? the classic being in newspapers and in you know live television madness is that you deal better with i'm better if i've got a lot of things going on at once and i've got a deadline and i'm if i'm given three hours to smash something out then i'm much better than going an endless kind of ah, do that whenever you feel like it and just see how that rolls out i like the a pressured environment so much more than that kind of 
you know, silence is golden. I feel like a lot of the time, you know, you, even though we work in an open plan office, I feel like I could hear a pin drop sometimes when I walk around. So, yeah, I'd much prefer a bit of banter and, you know, you get a bit off your chest and once, you know, if you've sledged a few of your colleagues yeah. and, you know, it makes you feel good about yourself and then it all seems to come together. The cone of silence of the, yeah, the mushroom room. <laughs> What's left for you, Shan? Is there stuff on the bucket list? And did you have goals? Like- Very definitely. When I started out in journalism, I knew that I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. That went well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's my, I feel it's my lack of language skills. And I just, I don't know where that came from. When I did my um, journalism degree, I majored in politics because I, I, was, I loved that kind of, you know, banter and the back and forth. I liked combat, I think, and it didn't matter whether it was on the sporting field or in a kind of parliamentary setting. I like the kind of to and fro, the cut and thrust of, you know, people putting together ideas or having a go at each other, kind of, a you know, adverse people coming at things from different angles. So I think that sport was, even though it doesn't feel like a natural kind of stepping stone, because I always had played sport all my life and had an interest in it that, you know, once my opportunity for sport production came along and, you know, I think you kind of get a couple of Olympics under your belt and, you know, that type of thing and you realise, my God, we are such a, you know, tiny little spot here, you know, in Australia, Melbourne, in production when you head off and do an Olympic Games you kind of go oh my god this just has opened up a whole new world and then I think that opportunity comes knocking if you keep on you know having a crack and trying to do things and quite often a lot of the time you're kind of going oh god I cannot believe I'm here doing this but I feel like you've got to give everything 110 or you know people see through it and it doesn't matter whether it's your own thing but opportunity comes along when you're working hard and I know that when I worked in footy I just used to do you know tennis over that two-week break of you know the summer holidays when we were had in the footy off season and it was a bit the same as before I used to do the tennis I used to do some stuff for globe skateboarding and I laugh because now my kids love skateboarding. I was going to say, yeah, wow. And, you know, we I'd gone away with all these crazy skaters to Tokyo and LA and all these great spots with the Hill Brothers who owned, you know, the Globe group and a couple of young cameramen and I produced a few things for them. Well, we had the best time just kind of, you know, banging around doing stuff. And if you think that skateboarders are easygoing, think again because they were always so difficult to wrangle they would just never turn up or you know keep their own time skate time which was always any time but the right time (laughs) so I think that a lot of the time even if you think oh I'm not sure if I'm interested in that you've got to give everything a red hot crack or else you you know the regrets come when you haven't tried to give something the best that you can because opportunity comes from it. What about when you're doing things now? What do you look for now? Is it just wads of cash or is it still, is it the people? Is it, what's what's kind of your compromise? Oh, cash is good. Cash, cash is cash good. Cash is really mm. good. But I think, you know, now, you know, being a mum, my boys are so heavily involved in sport and everything now. I used to work all the weekends, you know, in sport. Now I feel like I'm an Uber driver unpaid for them (laughs) to sport. So I feel like it's kind of come full circle. But like for me now, it's the flexibility that I crave because, you know, I've got so much going on, you know, at home and my husband's got his own architectural business. So he's like always, whenever I kind of come home and go, do you think I could do Wimbledon and Labor Cup? And he's like... No. And I'm like, okay. So I think, you know, it's that kind of, you know, once you've got a family, you've got to, something's got to give or else it just doesn't work. So I'm hoping that I then have a renaissance. Yeah. Post kids and school. Yeah. And I'd go to that next level of what I'd, you know, maybe I will reach that foreign correspondence (laughs) ambition. I'm not would, sure what I'll be covering. I would bloody love that. <laughs> that would be unbelievable. But, you know, I feel like I'm living in a war zone, so I'm more than happy to go to a far-flung country war zone. Yeah, really? Yeah. Far out. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm always sledging my children, but yeah. God love them. I think I think, I think they're going to be they are going to be soldiers in their <laughs> their gonna own way. Going to be resilient. Um, what what did you think I was going to ask you that I didn't ask you? Were you hoping that I served you up or lobbed you up? Some? I was scared you were going to focus on my number one faux pas. Yeah. From uh, AO 2018. Oh. Uh-oh. Uh no, AO twenty are we you know what what year are we in? We are well, it's two thousand nineteen. Yeah, AO twenty nineteen. <laughs> when I sent Serena out first on court oh. and it was supposed to be Simona Halep. And I I fluffed it all up and thank God that everyone just was sledging Serena and saying, oh, look at that egomaniac. She thinks she's number one even though she's not. And it was actually my fault. But I was happy for Serena to wear it. So (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, look at her. What an ego. She's a gorgeous little thing, isn't she? Oh, no. (laughs) And Simona Halep is so lovely and she was so fully deserving of being able to walk out in that second position but i hadn't quite cottoned on to that you'll get there mate yeah it's just, it's i'm just learning i'm You're learning just a young buck <laughs> well it was a very funny moment because craig tiley had the day before i'd been chased down by pr they have this daily stuntery where they present someone with the ao person of the day or something yeah. like worker of the week for kids yeah and I, I had been brandished with this label for, I can't remember, day two or day three of the tournament this year. And I couldn't have been more proud with an extra 300 bucks in my pocket. That was the grand prize. And then the day after the Simona Serena affair happened, and I was a bit worried that Craig Tyler was going to come and revoke my cash. Whoop. Take it, take I it avoided away. him. I avoided him for the full <laughs> fortnight. <laughs> You got away with it. Hey, this this might be hard, and it could be too close to the bone for you because you're very humble. What's um What's one of the the better compliments that you've ever been given, or when has someone really like hit the nail on the head when they've been describing you? I'll give you a second. It's it's a hard one. I just kind of made it up. I always take as the greatest of compliments that people that kind of go you you're really good at what you do, and you made it really easy for me. Great. Yep. That always makes me feel good because I think, oh, good, they've, it hasn't been too painful. <laughs> I haven't got that a lot, Baz. I'm waiting to oh. hear that. <laughs> when I hear that, that is the one I want. I think you are very good at what you do. You made this very easy for me. I feel like I've just been, just been chilling here. I didn't even look at any of my questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm good at crapping on. You're good at a lot of things. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time. Shan, you... Um, let me come and harass you during your lunchtime. So that's the calibre of human you are. It's a privilege. And you know the one man that would be super happy about that, Steve Carey from the 80s, telling me I need to drop 10 kilos. This one's for you, this Steve. This <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks. Absolutely amazing. Thank you, my friend, for listening. If you liked the episode, if you thought Shannon was the best, like she is, just send me a message. You can't find her on Instagram. You can't find her on Facebook. She is nowhere to be found on the internet. So just send a message to me. I'll screenshot it. I'll pass it along to her. She'll get an absolute kick out of it. If you dug the podcast, it would mean the world to me for you just to share it with one other person, someone probably a lot like you that's into this kind of stuff. Just be like, hey, give this a listen. Give this a whirl. Let this bounce around between your ears for a little bit. Thanks so much. Bye.